So today, as we kick off this new teaching series, we get to talk about marriage. Specifically, we get to talk about how faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus transforms us, and it, it enables us to be a brand new and even better kind of friend to our spouse. Now, as we dive into this conversation, I just want to recognize that, that there, are, there are many who are here this morning who are not yet married, or who are maybe recently unmarried, or who are saying to themselves, I will never, ever, 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 Pastor Matt, get married. Or perhaps you're here and you have a heavy heart because the person to whom you were married is no longer with you. I just want to recognize that, that we're all here today as we talk about this. And I recognize that, that talking about marriage for, for many can be very, very tender. And to that I'll say this. Uh, the, the church at times makes the mistake of sacramentalizing marriage. Is marriage special? Is it important? Does, does it deserve uh, reverence and respect? Absolutely. And yet, we must recognize that it is just one expression, one expression of our shared, universal, God-given need for companionship. We are all given this desire by God to walk through life with others. And there is a way to substantively, meaningfully walk through life with others, to be seen and known and fulfilled apart from marriage. And, and with that said, I would encourage you, if you are here and you're not married or maybe this is a tender subject for you, I would encourage you to, to listen today with an open heart and an open mind, knowing that because marriage is an expression of a universal need that we all have, lived out in many and various relationships, that you would be open to the idea that what we talk about today has application in all of your important and essential relationships. So with that said, I, I want to start with some words from the 1980s philosopher, Pat Benatar, <laughs> who once said, love is a, love is a battlefield. That's right. And I think, I think she got that from Jesus. <laughs> because what Jesus makes clear to us is that marriage is a fight. More specifically, marriage is something that must be fought for. So in the scripture that we just heard, Jesus is cornered by some of his theological enemies, and they ask him what they think is a really tricky question about marriage, and then Jesus says these words, words that have been repeated at countless wedding ceremonies since he uttered them. Jesus says this in Matthew 19, verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now the implication in Jesus' words are these, that from the moment a husband and a wife, a man and woman come together and they make these promises to each other in marriage, from the moment that they unite in marriage, there are forces seeking to pull them apart. I mean, otherwise, why would Jesus have to say in this quick teaching on marriage, what God brings together, don't let other people, other things pull apart, because there will be, from day one, all these forces trying to create space in between you and your spouse. And if you've been married for more than five seconds, I think you can nod your head in agreement and go, yeah, that's kind of how it works. The image that comes to mind for me is of a merry-go-round. The old school kind that used to be on every playground in America. The, the kind that you had to get a tetanus shot before you could ride it. <laughs> you remember these old merry-go-rounds, the giant steel death traps? 
And, and you would do what I would do as a kid. We would pour like 15 kids onto these merry-go-rounds, and then we get the biggest kid or the most irresponsible dad we can find to just spin us around as fast as possible. And remember what that felt like? You were on that merry-go-round, and as it starts to spin, you can feel it pulling you off the merry-go-round. You can feel this force start to pull you and pry you away from your friends until children are just flying everywhere. That is a lot like marriage. <laughs> just go with me on this, okay? You, you, you get on the merry-go-round, and it starts to move around nice and slow, and you're like, this is sweet, this is good, this is working. And then, and then your careers start happening, and it starts moving faster. And then grad school kicks in, and then financial pressures emerge, and then you have kids, and before you know it, this thing is really moving, and you can feel that there's this force kind of pulling you away from your partner as this life you've created together starts to spin with more intensity, and it takes a lot of effort to hold on, doesn't it? And to make sure that, that you're still connected at the center of the thing, because there's all this force pulling you off. And maybe you've reached the stage in life where you see a lot of other couples flying off the merry-go-round in opposite directions, right? You've seen it. Now, now the good news is that if you are here as a, a baptized, forgiven follower of Jesus, that, that God gives to his people the things that we need to hold on. Not just hold on, but the things that we need to, to be satisfied and faithful and fully engaged in this ride. Now, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he's trying to help Timothy understand the fundamental transformation that he had undergone. He, he came to faith in Jesus, and everything outside and inside of Paul changed. Listen again to what Paul says to Timothy. I'm going to actually start this reading a little earlier than what we saw before. Uh, Paul says this, When I came to faith in Jesus, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Pause right there. Paul is saying, I, I, I encountered the resurrected Jesus. And since that encounter, God gave me the gift of faith, of believing and entrusting in who Jesus is. But not only that, he filled me with love. He filled me with compassion for other people, really. And understand, Paul was not known for his love and compassion prior to his encounter with Jesus. He was known for hating, if not championing, the killing of Christians. Not a nice guy, but he's like, I met the resurrected Jesus, I fully believe in who he is, and now I'm really nice. And then he keeps going. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says that when he met the resurrected Jesus, he was transformed. And he was given, from this text, he was given three things. Faith, compassion, and incredible humility. And it just so happens that you, you who are here, who have encountered Jesus Christ in your own belief, in your own baptism. It might not feel like it to you, but you have been given the exact same gifts. That's God's promise to you. That you who, like Paul, have met the resurrected Jesus, who have been baptized into his name, filled with God's own spirit, that you too have been given the gift of faith. You have a heart that is holding on to the person and the promises of Christ. Not only that, God has given you compassion. 
you now know that the highest calling in this world is to meet the needs of your neighbors. And he's given you humility. You have a keen awareness of the mountain of mercy that you require each and every day. He's given you faith and compassion and humility. And it just so happens that these are the things that human beings need in order to be the best kind of friend and companion to the people around them, especially the people who are closest to them. So, so listen to how this transforms our relationships, in particular those most intimate of relationships. When you hold these things, faith, compassion, and humility in your hands, what it allows you to do is level the playing field in your relationships. It puts you and your partner on common, broken ground. You see, our instinct in all of our relationships, but especially in those that are closest to us, is to, is to play up the other person's issues and play down our own. So, so we'll say like, well, my husband, he's got problems. Me, I know I'm no peach, but I have quirks. Or my wife, man, my wife, there are times, man, my wife breaks my heart. Me, I just, yeah, I make mistakes. Or you know what, I, I judge him according to his actions. But, but I would like to be understood in light of my intentions. We, we play up their faults and their foibles. And we play down our own. But what faith in Jesus Christ does for us and the humility that comes with it, what, what it allows us to say is, look, um, I'm the worst sinner I know. I am. I am the worst sinner I know. Even though my spouse snores and keeps me up at night and refuses to wear a CPAP, even though my, my, my spouse is sometimes cold and distant and condescending and it hurts me, even though my, my husband sits in the living room and picks his toes, even though my wife tells her mom everything, even the things I tell her not to, she tells her everything. Despite all those things being true about them, I am the worst sinner I know. Now, my wife is a close second. But I am the worst sinner I know. And any, any amount of grace and mercy that I have to show to them, they have to show that and more to me. When, when you have that humility instilled in your relationship, what it does is it knocks you off the pedestal that you are so tempted to put yourself on and look down at other people from, in particular your spouse. It knocks you off that pedestal and puts you on the same broken ground. And it helps set appropriate expectations. You can look at your spouse and you can say, look, I am married to a terrible sinner. And so are you. And our humanity is going to metaphorically bump and bruise one another over and over and over again each and every day of our lives. What, what, what else can we expect as we try to love each other? Now, now when you let that, that humility soak in and you, you let it level the playing field in your relationships, it opens up this really fascinating opportunity where conflict becomes an opportunity for connection. Because if you are able, holding that humility in hand, to look at your spouse and say, look, 
I know she made me mad, but behind that beautiful face that fills me with fury is a scared sinner. And I know that she is a scared sinner because I am a scared sinner. And now, when we're going at it, what, what we can do for each other is we can invite each other to come out from hiding, so to speak, and, and be honest about the sinfulness and the brokenness and the nastiness that we are bringing into the confrontation so that you can not only defend your position, but you can, with humility, say, look, he, here's, here's where I need grace in all of this. Here's what my fears are in all of this. Here's how I'm being irrational in all of this. And then you invite your sinner of a spouse to do the same. And if you're willing to meet in that space where you're not only fighting about the kids or the money or whatever it is, but you're also exposing your sin and your weakness to one another, and then you use some of that compassion that you've been given to not see your partner as an adversary, but a fellow scared sinner who's just trying to figure this out, then that conflict becomes an opportunity for intimacy and deeper connection. And things grow, not because you've avoided conflict, but because in the middle of conflict, you were bold enough to show your sinner side and to receive the same from them. Here's an exercise for you to try. If you are brave, the next time you have a conflict with, with, with anyone who is important to you, rather than defend your position or, or articulate all the reasons why you're right, alongside those things, also maybe be willing to do this. Try this out. Finish these sentences in your conversation with your partner. I am afraid of blank. What are your fears? I need grace for blank. And then watch how things change. The other thing that, that Jesus enables us to do in these important relationships filled with faith and compassion and, and, and humility is he allows us to lighten the load, the burden that we place on our spouse in marriage. Now you might think, well, I don't, I don't, I don't I don't put a burden on my spouse. Well, well, here's the thing. Funny thing about how human beings work. Do you have hopes and dreams and desires that you bring into your relationships? You do, don't you? Maybe you never knew this, but every hope and dream and desire that you have for every relationship that you, that you engage in, the other person receives it not as a hope and a dream and a desire, but they receive it as an expectation. What you see as a hope and a dream and a desire for the two of you the person you're in partnership with sees it as an expectation that's been placed upon them. That's just how it works. And, and then what, what you are free to do, though, is lighten that burden. You see, one of the big problems in modern relationships is that we take all this existential pressure and we put it on the people around us. We live in a day and age where, where self-fulfillment, self-expression, self-actualization, personal fulfillment, finding your passion and joy are, are the gods of our day. And we take that expectation that we are going to make the most and be the best in our life, and we don't keep it in our hands. We put it on the shoulders of all the people around us, especially those who are closest to us. And what we say to them is, save me. We don't say those words, but that's the expectation. I want to be full. I want to be happy. I want to have peace. And it's on you to help me be full and be happy and have peace. 
But here's what you know because you have faith in Jesus. What you know is that no other human being can make you happy or whole. Not your spouse, not your best friend, not your kids, not Pastor Matt, not anybody can do that. Only Jesus can do that. What you know is that the greatest need of the human heart, the greatest need of every single human heart, is to be right with the one who made you and to have the mistakes that you've made covered over in mercy and the mortality in your bones defeated so that you know it's not the end. And Jesus accomplishes that. Jesus makes you right with the Father, covers your mistakes in mercy, and secures for you an eternity in the Father's family. And that is what truly satisfies, growing in that, leaning in that. And you know that. One of the greatest gifts, therefore, that you can give to your spouse is a sentence like this. <laughs> you won't write it on a Hallmark card, but trust me, this is a gift. Say to the most important person in your life, you cannot make me happy and whole. You have a part to play in it, but you are not responsible for it. Because if I put my wholeness and my, con my contentment and my peace on your shoulders, it will weigh you down, set you up for failure, and in the end, you're going to disappoint me and I'm going to be bitter towards you. The only person who can make you whole and make you satisfied is Jesus. And so, and so if you're here today and, and you, are, you are not yet married, and, and you are, however, looking for that or aiming for that, one of the best gifts that you can give your future spouse, one of the ways in which you can work on that future relationship today is to work on your faith and your relationship with the Lord today. And you're like, I knew Pastor Matt was going to say that. He's a pastor. What else is he supposed to say? But look, get your wholeness figured out before you journey into oneness with somebody else. That way, when you finally do swipe right on Mr. Right, you show up to that relationship looking for a partner and not a savior. Because as a savior, every single human being will let you down. So often we show up to these important relationships and we are saying, fix me, fix me, fix me, fix me, fix my loneliness, fix my feeling of inadequacy, F fix my heartache, fix my anxiety. And no one can fix you. In fact, in fact, it is not the job of your spouse to fix you. It is not the job of your children to fix you. It is not the job of any other human being to fix you. They can't. They can't fix you. The only person who can fix you is Jesus. Now, you might be saying, well, Matt, but like, I, I get that. Like, my spouse can't fix me, but like, if, if she doesn't, Joanna gains all of this. If, if she doesn't turn this from a flop into a flip, <laughs> then, then who will? Because I am a mess. Well, I'm not saying that your spouse has no role to play in your transformation. I'm not saying that they have no help to give you. In fact, put it like this. Here's what the role of a, of a healthy spouse is in your fixing. Their job is not to fix you, but instead, when you're at your worst, when you're at your lowest, when you're really struggling, their job is twofold, to find you and to focus you. That's what they can do. Let me explain. The book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, first couple. They, they fall into sin and bring all of us with them. And when they, when they fail... When they break everything, when they and all of creation need fixing, what's the first thing that they do? They hide. And human beings, in the face of their own issues, have been hiding ever since. 
We don't choose fig leaves. Instead, we, we hide behind our work. Or we hide behind our anger. Or we hide behind our humor and help everybody think it's fine. Or we hide behind our money. Or we hide behind a lie where we tell everybody, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, even though everybody knows you're not good. We hide. Your task as a spouse, when you see that your husband and your wife is broken, or their brokenness is shining through, and somebody's got to fix them. Your job is not to fix them. Your job is to find them, to call them out of their hiding. And the way in which you call them out of their hiding is you pursue them, and you just show curiosity towards them, and you are a safe person to them, and you ask questions of them. What, 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 what are you afraid of? Where, where's this fear coming from? Where's, where's the anger coming from? Is there anything that you wish would have been done differently? Well, what do you need from me right now? How can, how can I help you and love you and serve you? Just call them out of that. Find them in it and show curiosity. Don't, don't got to fix a thing. Just meet them in it. And then as you find them in their problem, you just focus them on the things that matter most. And the way you do that is you just tell them the things that are good and true. Well, you know, you know, you know I love you, right? You know, the kids and I, we are, we are very, very grateful for you, and we are very proud of you. Baby, I know this is going to be weird coming from me, but like, we, we, we have a God above us who cares for us and has a plan for us, okay? So like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. Your job is not to fix them because you can't. Your job is just to find them in their need for fixing and focus them on the things that matter most. Focus them on the one who can fix. That's what a spouse does. I, I got another one for you. Saved by Jesus, made brand new by him, holding faith and love and humility in our hands, we are able in our most important relationships, in particular in our marriage relationship, to reprioritize the promises. At the center of a marriage are not two people, but a promise between two people. A promise to love and to serve, to cherish, to, to, to binge watch bad reality television for the rest of your life until you die. And you can make the case that, that the promise actually is what makes the relationship. A promise is the marriage. And so that promise made between those two human beings needs to stay at the center and you need to focus on it. You got to nurture it. You got to celebrate it. You got to find ways to renew it because the promise is everything. The promise has to get the priority because the promise is what makes and keeps the relationship. And, and this dynamic of the promise being everything that comes to us from God. That, that's how he interacts with us. In, in the Old Testament, we, we see that God is like, I want a people of my own. And so he reaches out to, to Abraham and to others, and he's like, this is going to be my family. And he makes a promise to him. And he, and he builds this family, and even though they show themselves really unworthy of his love, they show themselves to, to be promiscuous with their hearts and giving their heart away to everybody under the sun except for the one who loves them the most, God, the one who's chosen them. And despite their unfaithfulness, despite their bad attitude, despite them showing themselves to be ungrateful members of his family, he continues to renew the covenant, renew the promise, pursue them and make them his own. Why? Because he made a promise and he keeps his word. And he keeps his word not because 
they have proven themselves worth it, but because he is a God who makes promises and keeps promises, that's all of it. And then he sends his son, Jesus Christ, because he promised to do something with all of our sin, and he promised to do something with the death that chases us down. And in Jesus Christ, he has covered over the sin of the world. And in Jesus Christ, rise from the grave, he has defeated death. And then through faith in Christ, he gives the whole world that gift and makes the whole world his family. Anyone who has a heart full of faith in Jesus is now in that family. And you are covered in God's love and mercy and grace and his care and protection on into eternity. Why? Because he's promised to do so. And he always keeps his promise. Even when you show that you don't, you don't love it like you should, prioritize it like you should, keep your end of the deal up like you should, God's like, nope, it's not about you, it's about me. I promised. We must prioritize the promise that sits at the center of the relationship. But here's what we often do. We prioritize everything other than the promise. We, we put our work in the center, building up our careers. We put... Our finances in the center, making sure we, we got that house we want, the nest egg we need. We put our kids in the center. And we say, well, that's just what good parents do, right? But you have to prioritize the promise. Let me illustrate this. I, I want you to think, this is an analogy that's, that's always worked for me and, and, and Lisa. We've, we've used this at times. And maybe it'll work for you. I want you to think of, of your family, your family system as a solar system, if you will. And at the, the center of the solar system is the sun, right? And everything revolves around the sun, and it creates this gravitational pull that keeps everything together. Now, what a lot of families do is they put everything other than the primary couple in the center of the system. They'll put their work in the center of the system, and everyone revolves around that. Or they'll put their finances in the center of the system, and everything revolves around that. Or they'll put their children in the center of the system, and everything, mom and dad, revolve around that. And it creates the gravitational pull that keeps everything together, and all the warmth that keeps everything lit and going, right? But then what happens if the sun leaves the solar system? All of a sudden, everything goes cold. And the gravitational pull drops, and everything goes spinning off in its own direction. So what happens if you've made work the center of the system when you retire or you're laid off? What happens if you made your financial well-being the center of the system? What happens when you, when you go broke or on a fixed income? Or what happens when you've made the children, the blessing that they are, the center of the system, what happens when they, Lord willing, move out of the house and create their own system? When the center of the system leaves, everything grows dark, and that which was keeping it all together is gone, and everything spins off in its own direction. So what must you do? You must prioritize the promise between the two of you. We, us, we are at the center of the system. If you've got kids, the best way to love your kids is to love your spouse the most. I'm telling you. The best way to love your kids is to love your spouse the most. Best way to invest in their future is to make sure things are right with you today. Because one day, they're going to spin off and they're going to make a little system of their own. And when they do, everything can fall apart for you or the two of you can still be at the center of your own little galaxy. 
Because if they're at the middle and they spin off, then when they spin off, you've lost the center of your world and everything is flying on its own. Prioritize the promise. Uh, one of my favorite theologians is a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. And he once wrote these words. He said, you always marry the wrong person. And at first when I read that, I was like, huh, I don't know if I agree with that. And then I read it more and I was married longer and I'm like, hmm, I think he's onto something. No, no, here's what, here's what I mean. Here, this is what his point was. When you stand at the altar and you get married, of course it's Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Of course. But then what happens is that over the course of time, people change. Over the course of decades, people change dramatically. And it's a common thing in marriage after five years, 10 years, 15 years, to, to roll over in bed one morning, look at your spouse of several decades and go, huh, that's new. This is different. Because people change. And there's a temptation as you go through life and people change to go, I don't know, maybe this was wrong. Maybe this wasn't the right, but maybe, maybe this was, maybe we need something. You always marry the wrong person. You always do. Because people change. And, and what it's going to require of you is you prioritizing the promise and keeping that promise at the center. Because, because here's what's true. When you stand up at the altar and you, you get married, you're not making a promise to that person who's standing next to you. What you're making a promise to is the person that they will become 10 years from now. The person that they are 15 years from now. 34 years from now. You're making a promise to, to what his needs are and who he is a decade from now. You're making a promise to who she is after the kids have moved out and maybe sickness has settled in. You're not making a promise to that person right then. You're making a promise to whoever they become. You see, here's what marriage is. Marriage is a commitment to take a long walk through everything. To grab a friend by the hand and say, we're going to walk together through everything. Even as the scenery around us and the person next to us shifts and changes. And, and that's a beautiful thing, but it's, but it's also a difficult thing. It, it requires a, a whole lot of faith in, in the God above you and the, the fact that he's placed you there and put you there. And it, and it takes a whole lot of compassion for the person that's next to you, and it takes a ton of humility to know that you require just as much grace as they do. It, it takes a whole lot of those things, but the good news is that God has given you everything you need to hold on. Filled with faith, love, and humility, may you allow it to level the playing field in all of your relationships. May, may it help you to prioritize the promise that sits the center of all of it. And may, may you allow it to lighten the burden that you place on others, knowing that your greatest need is met in him. And when you fail at that, when you struggle with that, on days when you don't want to do that, may you, led by his spirit, just go running to him who loves you first and loves you best and watch as he is faithful to you. And then may that enable you and empower you to be faithful to them. Amen.